Two other students have their graduation delayed by a year for the crime of dating. Romantic relationships in college are forbidden, and one couple is caught flouting the rules. They are forced to put on heavy makeup and paraded before the entire school as an example. Excessive punishment, Grandpa says, shaking his head. The so it was in those days. Hello, China Talk listeners. My name is Vivian Zong, and I'm currently a graduate student at Stanford University. I was born in China, but grew up in New York. And throughout my life, I've had a lot of exposure to Chinese culture and history through my family. But it wasn't until two years ago that I realized how little I knew of my grandparents' own lives. So over the course of a summer, at the height of the pandemic, while I was at home every day with just my grandparents, I started to stitch together their stories, as revealed little by little through conversations during dinner, anecdote by anecdote, jumping from one decade to another. No person who lived through the era that they did was untouched by the hands of history. Yet so many of their experiences will never make it to any history textbook. So the following is my recounting of my grandpa's story. How could you understand those times? Our fates were not in our own hands. I could never have imagined that I would become the president of a factory. Things just happen to us according to the whims of society. Not like for you. For you, your abilities determine your fate. Part one, Chongqing. The city of Chongqing sits on the banks of the Changjiang at the point where it intersects with the smaller Jialing River. Changjiang means Long River, which English speakers may know as the Yangtze River. There's a peninsula at this intersection, which forms one of the oldest parts of the city. And on this peninsula is the historical 18 stairs, which climbs steeply up from the riverbank, following the contours of this wildly hilly city. When I visited a few years ago, the government was renovating the 18 stairs into a modern tourist site, but there was still enough rotting wooden houses and crumbling stairs left to give a sense of what it was like when China was an impoverished nation, struggling to rebuild itself from the ruins of a dead empire. February 1944. Grandpa is born in a wooden building somewhere in Chongqing. This event is but one of the innumerable little side effects of World War II. His father had been an, a ceramics artisan in Nancheng, whose calligraphy was renowned in the city and whose work had once been featured in a national gallery. He had fled with so many other civilians after Japanese occupation of the city, first from Nancheng to Wuhan, then again from Wuhan to a county next to Chongqing. There, he met and married great grandmother, who was twenty years his junior. The aerial attacks chased them to a village on the outskirts of Chongqing, and at last into the city itself. 1946, Chongqing, the most populous city in Sichuan Province, has been the provisional capital of the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, since 1937. This made it a target of Japanese aerial campaigns during World War II, leaving the city bombarded and fire ravaged. Why did your parents decide to move there? I ask. I don't know. Grandpa says. The bomb battering and fire ravaging all happened before Grandpa was born or old enough to remember. He describes it as if he had lived through it. The city woke up one morning in September to find building after wooden building burned to the ground. Grandpa's home is not far from the complex that housed government bank workers. His mother has a good enough relationship with the workers there that he and his siblings get to play in their expansive courtyard. Within the walls of that complex flourishes a tranquil garden entirely at odds with the city outside. In a nearby wooden house lives a neighbor who is a coffin merchant. That's not a job that would exist in Chongqing now. Cremation dominates in urban China. 1949, Grandpa remembers waking up one day to the sound of the gong and being told that they had been liberated. Everyone is out on the streets, and there's a parade. It must be October 1st or some day around then, for that is the official founding day of the People's Republic of China. The Nationalist Party has largely quit the city by now.
Left behind are the universities and factories that kept the city standing through the long years of bombardment. And these now came, along with Chongqing and the rest of mainland China, under the dominion of the Communist Party. A side note on Chongqing. It's the provincial capital of Sichuan in governance, manufacturing, and humidity. It was certainly the oppressive atmosphere that led to its famously spicy, spicy dishes. Even before chili peppers found their way from the ports to landlocked Sichuan in the 16th or 17th century, the province's dishes were infused spices like the Sichuan peppercorn. Grandma remarks that the humidity is why the people of Chongqing are as volatile as the spices they eat. They're quick to anchor, and once offended, react with their fists. That, she says, plus the concentration of weapons factories in the area, are why the most violent confrontations of the Cultural Revolution blew up at Chongqing. But that won't be until the late 60s. Now it's still 1952, and Grandpa has started helping his father with his pottery trade. There are six children in the family to support, and he is the eldest son. He sleeps with three of his siblings on one long wooden bed, two on each end. To supplement the income, he also goes down to the riverbank to collect stones to sell to the cement company for a few cents per hole. He does this after school, where he studies Chinese history, geography, and language, along with arithmetic. And plant biology, he says, slowly pulling out the subjects one by one from a long-ago schedule. Grandpa tests into a good local high school in 1957, age 14. He and his classmates have started to switch from writing traditional script to simplified script, from starting a sentence on the right to starting on the left. They learn geometry and world history. Meanwhile, the government's greatly forward movement is in full swing. The collective farming and crop redistribution initiatives, coupled with droughts, combine to bring famine to the entire country. Sichuan, which had always been the breadbasket of China, suffers even more than most. In the summer after he turns 19, Grandpa goes to the riverbank, this time to sail up the Long River to get to college in Wuhan. He pays a few cents for a spot on a coal-powered steamboat, whose passengers sleep in cabin rooms packed tight along a long corridor, with a triple-decker bunk bed in each room. It's three days downriver and seven days back upriver. In 2020, high-speed rail will convey passengers from Chongqing to Wuhan in five to seven hours. Also in 2020, Grandpa will belong to an alumni WeChat group named 6221, and that is how he's able to recall that in 1962, he joins the Aerospace Imaging and Surveying Department, which is designated Course 2, as part of Cohort 1, hence 6221. The college he attends had actually been his second choice, and he's only added it to his list because his proudly Southern father demanded that he include a Southern college. He has high college entrance exam scores, but spots are few. The Great Leap Forward is just coming to an end, and resources remain thinly spread among the hungry populace. His first choice had been Beijing Agricultural Engineering University, which is highly competitive even in a good year. And in 1962, everyone is dreaming of going to Beijing, one of only two cities where you could buy goods with money instead of just relying on the ration system. Would you have wound up on a farm after college if you'd gone there, I ask? Yeah, he replies. Yeah, I suppose it was a good thing I didn't get in. Part 2. The 6221 Years In the first year, they take standard classes, like writing and history and Russian. I ask him how much he remembers. Thank you. Hello, he offers me in Chinese-accented Russian. He offers me in Chinese-accented Russian. That's it? I push. That's it, he shrugs. Then for the next five years, it's all specialized subjects. Then, for the next five years, it's all specialized subjects. 
Grandpa shows an acumen for math and physics, even tutoring other students. Despite often having to study on rumbling stomachs, the equipment they get to work with are actually top-notch German imports. For those student food siphons are standardized across the country. The college itself is well-funded through a collaboration between the two top technical universities in the country. Grandpa is certain that he has the worst room in the entire dormitory. Like all the others, it houses eight people and four bunk beds, but it's west-facing, so there's a lot of sun glare and at the same time very cold in the winter. He shares the room with the cohort president. How is the cohort president chosen? Well, he's older than the other students, so one would think that he has a greater sense of responsibility. But everyone knows it's really because he has good chengfen. Chengfen literally means composition and refers to a person's social class status. The cohort president's family are poor farmers, and by Chairman Mao's decree, that is about the most respectable family background a person can have. There exists a newspaper picture of a flotilla of college students swimming the one-hour distance across the Yangtze River. They have balloons and rope tied around their waist. The ropes pull a wooden sign proclaiming, We must liberate Taiwan, which bobs on a bamboo float in the wake of a motorboat, atop which stands a visiting Mao Zedong. One of these students is Grandpa, afforded the honor after a competitive selection process and intense month-long training to make sure they had the stamina to make it across. He has never been able to find himself in the photo, though. He must be just outside the frame, or hidden by a passing wave. It's during college that Grandpa develops a lifelong distaste for sweet potatoes, which we call, literally, red yams. For two months, his whole class is sent, as are so many college students across China, to toil on a farm. They eat red yams every day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, day after day after day. Why were there only red yams, I ask? The government told the farmers to grow red yams, so they grew red yams, Grandpa says simply. They only grew red yams, so that's what they ate, and that's all that we had to eat too. Every meal, every day, root, stem, leaf. Even so, the students are a bit better off than the farmers themselves. Every month, the students gather in the town to attend a meeting with party officials. And then they are fed rice and some vegetables. 1968. Grandpa graduates. Like everyone else, he gets assigned a job by the government. For a year or so, he lives in Xi'an, a provincial capital to the north of Sichuan. He works for a company, state-owned like everything else, that surveys the land for mineral deposits, probing for potential mines based on aerial images. The employees all live and eat together, taking turns assisting the cook. This cook is uncommonly skilled. Rumor has it that he served top government officials until he was charged with rape and cast down to the commons. Also on the chores list, grocery runs that are accomplished by way of a horse-drawn cart that, like a shuttle, picks up and drops off passengers wherever they want along its route. Other classmates have different assignments, different fates. The cohort president has given an officer position in the army and will rise high in the ranks. Grandma, who remembers the histories of my grandpa's classmates better than he himself does, as that he eventually winds up with quite a substantial pension. This military path is close to Grandpa, for he has close relations with a cousin who had worked in pre-liberation days for the Nationalist Party government as a pamphlet writer. Not everyone in Grandpa's class graduates with him. One student had left after failing to pass exams, despite tutoring from Grandpa, despite studying all day and well into the night. After mandatory lights out, that student would go outside and read his books under the street lamp. Two other students have their graduation delayed by a year for the crime of dating, 
Romantic relationships in college are forbidden, and one couple is caught flouting the rules. They are forced to put on heavy makeup and paraded before the entire school as an example. Excessive punishment, Grandpa says, shaking his head. But so it was in those days. When the couple is finally given job assignments, one is sent north and the other south. They keep in touch and eventually find each other again and get married. 1970. Grandpa is 26 now. He himself gets married to Grandma and returns to Sichuan, having been transferred to a defense manufacturing factory in the countryside near Chongqing, which employs his new bride. Grandpa has cultivated a woodworking hobby during his time in Xi'an. Timber is cheap, and he knows his way around tools from assisting his father as a child. As he sails back up the Yangtze River that first brought him away from home eight years ago, he brings big bundles of wood with him. How else, he says, will they be able to afford to have any furniture when wages are only 47.5 yuan a month? Adjusting for inflation, that's equivalent. Adjusting for inflation, that's the equivalent of about 35 U.S. dollars in 2022. Part 3. Leader of 4,000. To the locals, Grandpa's new factory is known simply by a number designation. The government decrees that it should specialize in making one thing, ignition mechanisms for guns that other factories in the area would assemble. Grandpa's first job at the factory, acquired for him by Grandma through connections and gifts, is in quality control. The Vietnam War is still raging, and China is providing arms and soldiers to the northern side. To support this, the government decrees that Grandpa's factory should now also manufacturing anti-aircraft missiles. One major problem plagues the missile manufacturing process. Undetectable air pockets in the propellant chamber would cause accidental explosions. Grandpa, in a stroke of genius, recalls his training in imaging techniques and suggests adapting medical x-ray machines to check for those problematic air pockets. He's proud of having thought of this, but at the same time, It'll always seem to him a stroke of luck to have had the right training at the right moment. Grandpa's solution is shared widely among similar factories and eventually gains the attention of the party official who oversees all air weaponry manufacturing in the country. The director's letter of recommendation gains Grandpa immense respect from those around him, and local party officials elect him as factory president in 1986, after the old one leaves to become university dean. Grandpa still has that letter, which makes him as Grandpa says teasingly, leader of 4,000. Grandpa is now called president by those 4,000 people and will be for the rest of his life. It's not merely a corporate promotion. All the workers and their family members live in the same complex together, like a village with college campus characteristics. To be head of the factory is also to be a public figure for the entire village. This comes with respect, along with its inevitable shadow, sycophancy and communist principles notwithstanding, there are material advantages too. His salary increases, though not by much, a paltry 60 yuan per month. By the time he retires in the 2000s, it grows to 4,000 yuan. Still, this, along with perhaps some gifts here and there, is enough for him to start purchasing clothing for the family, instead of having to sew it himself in World War II American housewife fashion. Technological novelties are another bonus. His family is the first in the factory village to acquire a refrigerator, mostly for the purpose of making ice pops. They are the first to have a TV, black and white and cobbled together by Grandpa from a video camera. All the neighbors gather around to watch the most popular cartoons of the time, mostly Japanese imports, like Atomo, or Astro Boy, and Hua Xianzi, or Flower Child Bun Lun. 
the family is also giving use of a car and a chauffeur for trips to Chongqing, a significant upgrade from being bounced on the back of pickup trucks that acted as a sort of company coach bus. Bumper cars, my mom calls them. Four bumpy hours were thus reduced to two smooth ones. For himself, Grandpa acquires his first cell phone, a brick of a device with maybe an hour of battery life, which he uses mostly to call the factory office from the far side of the river if he needed to be rowed back across. Grandpa's new smartphone still uses that same phone number. My mom and her sister are amply aware of their advantages. In a time when most of the country is still living under a system of ration books and only has access to the basic essentials, they are treated, maybe once a year, to fruit candies. Grandpa acquires these rare delicacies on business trips to Shanghai and Beijing, the only two cities where goods can be purchased with money. They are also spared from chores like going to the store to collect soy sauce, or going downstairs to collect water when the water pressure falls short. People call them Big Mademoiselle and Little Mademoiselle, Grandma and confides to me. Meanwhile, they see classmates come into school during harvest season, with cuts on their hands from using, from using the scythe. Still, it's rural China, and they are more mountain girls than they are bourgeoisie. Their pastimes include lugging potatoes and pans up the slopes for hilltop hot pot, and shooting sparrows with slingshots for grandma to fry. It's a time when the concept of international travel is unimaginably foreign to the average Chinese citizen. In college, grandpa's Russian classes were ungraded because how could any student fathom ever having the resources to leave the country? But as factory president, grandpa has a duty and privilege to see more of the world than any of his 4,000 workers. In Israel, the Dead Sea makes a long-lasting impression, and to this day he speaks of it with awe. 1986. Grandpa visits the U.S. for the first time, more than a decade before my parents immigrate to New York. It's a month-long road trip across the South, from California all the way to New York. An American woman named Betty is their driver and translator. From sea to shining sea, they tour American factories, identifying which machines to buy and bring back home. What did you eat on the way? I ask. Whatever was available. Hamburgers. Did you like it? No. Later, he travels also to Sweden. It's very strange, he says. We never saw the sun. And to Germany. I bought your grandma a beautiful woman's coat from a second-hand shop. She was the best-dressed woman in the whole village. His favorite trip, though, is to Japan. And it must be March because he recalls with wonder the cherry trees blossoming all over Tokyo and the slopes of Mount Fuji. The purpose of these trips is to figure out how to manufacture the ignition mechanisms for motorcycle engines. For it is now 1990, the Vietnam War is long over, the Cold War all but, and the demand for weapons is no longer enough to employ and feed all 4,000 workers. Cars are still out of reach for the average consumer, but motorcycles are gaining popularity as the next best thing in the height of cool. In Sweden, Grandpa arranges for the purchase of a boatload of machinery at a steep discount, for the factory there was discontinuing their own production. While in Japan, he observes high-pressure metal extrusion and replicates a setup back home. A rapidly modernizing China rockets in the, into the 1990s, with droves moving from the countryside to the cities. Grandpa's factory jumps on the bandwagon and moves part of its operations to Chengdu. Half of its workers and families move with it. The practical reasons given are the increasingly frequent landslides in the surrounding mountains and the easier access to transportation in Chengdu's flat terrain. But Grandpa admits that they are motivated, at least in part, by the draw of proximity to a major urban center. 
the Chengdu branch graduates at last from motorcycle engine ignition to car engine ignition, while the one that remained in the countryside reverted to manufacturing firearm ignition switches, this time for hunting rifles, to sell to American markets. They seem to really like guns in America, Grandpa observes to me. It's 2004, and I visit Chengdu for the first time that I can remember. Grandpa's retired. But as Grandma leads me through the streets of their apartment complex, which is still largely inhabited by employees or former employees of the factory, somehow everyone knows who I am. For the exclaim, this must be the little sea turtle granddaughter of the president. Part 4. A Tale of Rice What kind of food did your canteen serve in college, Grandpa? I ask over dinner one day. He frowns. What kind of food? Rice. Well, of course, I say, smiling indulgently. But what other food? Other food, he scoffs. That would have been nice. Just rice. We sat in tables of eight, and they'd bring out the rice steamed in a face-washing basin. Someone would divide it into eight sections. He demonstrates, moving his hand as one would to cut a cake. We had a spinner made just for this, he says. We would take turns, and wherever the pointer landed, you had to take that section of rice. Sometimes we try to get extra by digging in diagonally. We were always hungry then. It was a time of difficulties, and there were famines everywhere, because of natural disasters, you know? You couldn't possibly imagine what it was like then. No, I can't, I admit. Grandpa continues unprompted. We were always fighting over food. We couldn't have any bosom friends, because we were always fighting over food. Got along with some people, but we couldn't truly trust anyone. No friends the entire time you were in college, I ask, incredulous. Grandpa considers for a moment. I had one friend I was cl quite close to. We played basketball together. And where did your friend go after graduation? I pressed. He had a heart, Grandpa says grimly. He got sent to do farm labor for a year. A lot of my classmates did, because companies couldn't take many people. It was a time of difficulties. No one had any resources. But you were assigned to a company, I say. Yes, I was lucky, Grandpa recollects. And I suppose I had pretty good grades. I was assigned to Xi'an and avoided being sent to the fields. That would have been miserable. They had it worse than the farmers because they had to do military training too. At the time, there was some sort of negative sentiment towards college-educated people. And where did your friend end up, I ask? He went back to our college to be an instructor. And then? And then he became a professor. Some other classmates went to banks. Some became government officials. Everyone ended up in a pretty good place eventually. Because you see, after the Cultural Revolution, having a college education, well, it was valued again. Because there were so few intellectuals around by that time. That's how life was, back then. Our fortunes followed the whims of society. Ah, what's the point of telling me these things? It's a completely different world from what your generation knows. You can't possibly understand. <laughs>
一辈子，一生情。